from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Monday the 27th. I hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving and realize all of the many things we are thankful for. Make sure you check out the Thursday show from last week where we list 50 of the great reasons that you should be thankful that you're an entrepreneur and listening to this show. So anyway, hope you had a great holiday. We have got some amazing guests coming up here in the next week, two, three before Christmas. And that starts today. First up, Rich Horwath is with us to talk about strategy, eight time best selling author. We will ask about how to be a best selling author eight times. And then Benjamin Lightburn is with us to talk about psychedelics and the growing legal psychedelic market. Anyway, great show. Thanks for being with us. We're going to get started in about. 10 seconds. Again, thank you so much for being with us. We are back and I'm very excited to introduce my first guest. Please welcome Rich Horvath. He is the author, the guy behind strategic thinking. He is the founder and CEO of a company called the strategic thinking Institute. He has written eight New York times, wall street journal, best-selling books on strategy and strategic thinking. He has a new book out called strategic, the skill to set direction, create advantage and achieve executive. Excellent. Rich, welcome. How are you doing? Jim, I'm doing great. Thanks for the opportunity to chat today. It is my pleasure. What is strategy? Uh, how is it different from all the other buzzwords? Well, it's a great question because strategy is the term that gets most often confused when we come to business planning. So, you know, oftentimes we think about aspirations like to become the market leader or to have number one market share as strategies, but those aren't strategies at all. So the simple definition of a strategy is, is the intelligent allocation of resources through unique system of activities to achieve a goal. So simply put, strategy is how you plan to achieve your goal. Uh, when we think about a plan, we're going to answer two questions for any plan. What are you trying to achieve? And second question is, how are you going to do it? And strategy really answers that second question. How are we going to achieve our goals and objectives? It's execution. Execution is a key piece of strategy, absolutely. So, you know, when we set direction, we've got to have the resources, the people, the skill sets, the time, and the, and the advantage in order to be successful. So, to your point, execution is a key piece of strategy. We've got to be able to set the direction, and then we've got to be able to implement our resources in order to execute it. So, is plan the best synonym? So plan is a good synonym. I would say the best synonym would be to say advantage. Uh, anytime we have strategy, we're, we're creating a strategy to create advantage. We think about strategy started actually in the military arena thousands of years ago uh, in, in hopes of helping one uh, country or one force uh, defeat another. So anytime we have a strategy, we're trying to seek advantage of some sort. So it's really advantage. And then to your point, Jim, that advantage comes from having a good plan plan. All right. Is for the entrepreneur, how do we do on strategy? Is that one of the things we're good at or bad at? You know, there's so many, we have vision and we have passion and all of these different things that they talk about with entrepreneurs. Where does strategy fit in? 
Yeah, so it's especially as an entrepreneur, if you're a startup entrepreneur, you know, one of the things to think about is a scaffold for your business, for your company. And I think about three planks in a scaffold. The first plank is purpose. That's your mission, vision, values. It's the mission, what you're currently designed to do, your vision, where are you trying to go in 10, 15 years, and then your values, what's your what's your guiding principles day in and day out. So plank one for an entrepreneur is purpose purpose. Plank two is your business model. And for an entrepreneur, especially a startup, that's really critical. It it answers three questions. How are we going to create value? How are we going to deliver value? And then how are we going to capture that value in, in the form of profit? So that's plank number two is your business model. And then the third plank is your plan. And that's where strategy comes into play. So to your point, Jim, and it's a great point you bring up, oftentimes as an entrepreneur, especially a first-time entrepreneur, we're focused on those first two planks, getting our vision, our mission correct, and then that business model. How are we going to create, deliver, capture value? But we got to have that third plank which is what is the strategy that's going to lead us to competitive advantage. We used to have a game when we would play, all right, tell me the next sentence. And so the idea, Rich, is uh, we should start a business that, you know, makes seniors happy. Okay, tell me the next sentence. What's How do we, what's the next sentence? We provide what, you know. And so I loved, we would always, my first business, Rich, was in summer camps. And we would run 89 summer camps throughout the summer, which meant that at any day we had 10,000 kids at 50 different locations around the country. And our job was to figure out how to get enough copies of this disc into every city. You know what I mean? And so (laughs) it was all about the next sentence. How do we, okay. So every camp needs 20 copies of this. Okay. How do we do that? You know? And so we we figured out that we were really good at planning because we had to be my goal rich was to not work in the winter so that i could go I to school it. and go to you know uh go get my graduate degrees and my summer job at summer camp was going to pay for it and we learned really quickly that summer camp meant working all winter <laughs> <laughs> i bet it did jim uh but that's what we were good at is that little logistic thing you know so I guess, uh, and then that's part of it. But then also, you know, the strategy is right now I'm on 65 AM FM stations, Rich. My strategy, my plan of how to get to 100 is important, right? Exactly. You just put it exactly right. Your goal is to get to 100. The strategy is how are you going to get there? What does that look like? You know, creating new content, doing different types of outreach. What's the path? What's the trail that you're going to take to get there? And obviously with the success that you've had, Jim, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, somebody like you has got a lot of different options, a lot of different paths that they could take, you know, for the entrepreneurs out there listening, you know, one of the keys is, you know, research somebody like Jim, find out what's made him successful. What were the decisions on the path that he took to build those summer camps? You know, so we can always be learning as entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs from other entrepreneurs. To me, that's the greatest source of our ideas, of our strategies, is taking best practices, ideas from others, and and really jumping over into our domain and saying, how do we apply what somebody like Jim has done from their path to our path? Well, thank you for the nice words, Rich. Let's throw the question back to you, perhaps a little early. How did you get to be an eight-time New York Times bestseller. Uh, how did you become at the top of the thought leadership world? Discuss your path. Yeah, well, you know, my path started about 25 years ago, and I know I'm dating myself now, but I was facilitating a strategic planning session, and at one of the breaks, we we're having coffee, and one of the managers came up and said, "You know, Rich, I just had my performance review with my boss." And my boss's main point was, I'm too tactical. I need to be more strategic. And his his question to me was, how do I become more strategic? And it was a light bulb moment for me, Jim. You know, I said, well, let me do some 
research. And back then, 25 years ago, you know, we had a lot of great books from people like Michael Porter out of Harvard Business School, a school in C.K. Prahalad out of Michigan. But all those books on strategy were really on corporate strategy, on business unit strategy. There was nothing at the time for the individual manager or leader to say, here's your roadmap from going from tactical to strategic, not once a year when you're planning, but day in and day out, how do you become more strategic? So that roadmap didn't exist 25 years ago. And, you know, my passion has been, you know, give people a practical roadmap to go from tactical to strategic and to be able to run their business as effectively and as efficiently as possible. And that's what gets me up each and every day. And how did you build that business? How did you get your first check? the first person to pay for that uh, time. Well, I wasn't real strategic, I guess you could say, because when I left my my last job, I had no clients. Uh, I had no customers to speak of. So I really was starting from ground zero. And what I did was, I, 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 I and this again, this was 25 years ago, so we didn't have a lot of the uh, the electronic communications that we did today. But what I did is I, I, picked, I picked 10 companies that I said, these are companies I'd love to work with. I'd love to see how, how they plan, how they think strategically. So I sent letters to the 10 of the 10 of the CEOs and I got no responses. So I said, all right, I'm going to go to my next 10. The last one out of that next 10 sent me a reply and said, Hey, Rich, I'd be happy to have lunch with you and talk a little bit about how we do our business, how we do our business planning. So I had lunch with that gentleman. Uh, we sat down for what wound up being a couple hours. I asked a number of questions. And after the lunch, he said, you know, I don't think we're doing as good of a job as we could based on some of my responses to you on how we're doing strategic planning. So really, Jim, I, I would say my business has been built on from that first customer to today, I'm really trying to ask people good questions, ask people about the challenges, the, 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 the issues, the problems that they're trying to solve, and then give them a way to think through those. And then is your model, write the books and help the small guy so that the big guy hires me? Well, actually, no, you know, I, I, I work with companies of all sizes. So I work with solopreneurs, people who are a one man show. And then I worked with, you know, multi-billion dollar companies as well. And what I love about that is I get to see how all different people at different levels, at different sizes, think about their business and how to scale. So I've seen, I've worked with people that have scaled from $50,000 a year to, uh, to, to $6 million a year. And then I've worked with businesses that have scaled from a hundred million dollars a year to a billion dollars a year and then I've been fortunate to work with multi-billion dollar companies. So what I what I can say is when you look at all of those all of those businesses, all those sizes, you know, three things really pop up that separate people. It's the ability to create differentiation, it's the ability to focus, and it's the ability to reallocate resources. If you as an entrepreneur can do those three things, differentiate, focus, and then reallocate resources from areas that are underperforming to ones that are performing highly, that's going to give you a good chance to be successful. All right. In the book, I think you talk about the four disciplines of strategy. Am I correct? Yeah, exactly. The four disciplines of strategic fitness. Yep. Strategy, leadership, organization, and communication. Ice cream, I heard. <laughs> right. So, you know, again, when, when we think about those four flavors, those four fitness areas, you know, a good entrepreneur is going to need to to work on all of those. All right. Go through them again slower, Rich. You went too fast. I, I didn't get it. Ah, yeah. So, so the four areas are strategy. So the ability to set direction for the company, yep. it's leadership. So your ability to, to set direction, but then to serve others in achieving your goals. So that's the second one leadership, then organization. So have you created a structure with processes and systems that enables your people to use their resources to achieve the goal. So do you have that foundation in place? And then the last one is communication. And communication is really important, whether it's your one-on-one -on -one meetings with direct reports, whether it's your conversations with uh, angel investors, whether it's your communications to uh, your general employees. We've got, as entrepreneurs, be effective in communicating concisely and clearly. All right. So 
Rich, I am right now, I've started a gizzard business. We are the best gizzards around. Our gizzards are uh, chewier yet crunchier than any you can imagine. They are just absolutely delicious. So I have hired a team of five. We have a marketer, a finance and operations, an HR person, you know, those sort of divisions. Uh, what are my responsibilities as entrepreneur to set the strategy and implement it and then share it with my team? So walk through what best practices for an entrepreneur on sharing the strategy with the team. How do I make that happen right? Walk me through this. Right. So one of the things to think about What's your favorite is, type of gizzard first, though? Are, are you a cinnamon? <laughs> Do you like the well, extra grease? Or? Especially around Thanksgiving. I'm a big skin person. So as oh, long as it's got some, go, crispy, yes. some crispiness to the gizzard, then we're in good shape. But, right. uh, Walk me through but this. But again, you know... It, as, as an entrepreneur, I think one of the things it's easy to do is to lock ourselves in the office, create the strategy, come out and hand it to people like the Ten Commandments. You know, that, that doesn't work as well anymore. As an entrepreneur, we've got to be able to bring people into the conversation initially when we're developing the strategy. So I'm a big proponent that, you know, if you've got those five people that you outlined, let's meet with them on a regular basis, weekly, monthly, and let's talk about what's happening in the business, where are we trying to go, and, and how successful the path that we're currently on is. Because people in those different areas are going to have different perspectives that we may not necessarily have. So as a good entrepreneur, when it comes to setting strategy, don't lock yourself in an office. Don't put yourself on an island. Bring in and really collaborate with your counterparts on what they're seeing and what everybody thinks is going to be the best decision. Now, at the end of the day, if you're the entrepreneur running the business, you make the final decision, but you really want to get the input and buy-in from the people that work with you because once you do that, the research shows they're going to be 40% more committed to executing the strategy than if you just hand it to them without any explanation. All right. And then what do we do when we're off strategy? Right. So oftentimes if strategy is not working, so let's say we're, we're not getting to our goals and objectives that we set at the beginning of the year. First of all, we want to evaluate what's changed in the business. And when I think about that, you can picture a radar screen, right? A radar screen with four quadrants, market, customers, competitors and company. So a simple exercise for any entrepreneur out there, and this is called a contextual radar, is to sit down with your team and ask yourself what's changed in those four areas, market, customers, competitors, and company. And typically, if the strategy is not working, you're not getting to your goals and objectives, there's been changes in your business situation. So the first step is to really identify what's changing in the business. And then we, as a team, can talk about how do we address those changes. Ideally, we potentially can change tactics first. So tactics are the specific tangible things that are helping us get there. If the tactical changes aren't enough, then we might need to consider, do we change our, our overall direction, our path to getting to where we're trying to go, which is the strategy. So that would really be the first couple steps. Number one, take a snapshot of your business situation using a contextual radar. Then number two, identify what's changed. And then number three, determine whether you can change tactics or if you need to change the strategic direction overall. I've had a couple instances, one 30 years ago with the camp and one very recently where the response has been when I tell someone my idea or I give them my strategy, the response is that's not the way we do things. That's not the, what, what are you talking about? That we don't do that. That, that's, that, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. What do you do, Rich, when the response is, what? We don't do that. that. That's not the way strategy is. You're you're wrong. What do you do when people just flat out tell you your strategy ain't even in the box? <laughs> that's a good way to put it, Jim. So, you know, the first thing to think about is 
not necessarily, and it's easy to get defensive in those situations and, you know, come up with lots of reasons why we're right or why we think this is the best strategy. But what I would typically do is start with a question or two. So what makes you think that this strategy is not the right strategy? What, what's the evidence? What's the, the facts? What's the, the data that would say this strategy is not on course? So I think that's the first question is let's get what, Let's get, let's get what's behind their assumptions as to why the strategy is incorrect. The second question would be, has the situation in the past been exactly the same as this situation? Because typically people will say, well, we tried that in the past, but it didn't work. But oftentimes that, that, that's not necessarily true because the situation today is different than it was yesterday or 30 years ago when you were doing the camp. So I think those are the things I would start with is a couple questions asking, number one, what are the facts or data behind why you think the strategy is not going to be effective? And then secondly, what was the situation in the past when this strategy maybe wasn't as effective and how is that different from today's situation? So again, instead of getting defensive, let's ask some questions to really get to the heart of the matter. That's just the rule. That's the law. That's the law. Yeah. What's, what, what do you yeah. do when the answer is that's the law? There's no reason. It's just the way it is. Well, I, I typically would share some examples of companies that were highly successful. They had that law, quote unquote, in place, and then all of a sudden they were gone. So think about a company like Circuit City in the electronics field. You know, for many years, they were number one in the world. Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, had them as ranked as one of the top 11 companies in the world based on all these different financial metrics. And then six years later, they were gone. They didn't exist. Why? Because they had a law in place that didn't engage their thinking about what was changing. The former CEO from Circuit City said, look, we took our eye off the ball. We got complacent. We stopped planning and we forgot to really think about what's next in value for our customer. So again, if you're getting that, that pushback about, well, this is just the way it is, or this is the way we do it, share some examples of companies like Circuit City or Blockbuster or, or Borders that have laws like that in place that no longer exist. Great idea. Great strategy. Rich, fascinating stuff. And I hope this is, uh, this new book is a bestseller for you as well. How do we find out more? Follow online, get a copy of the book, hire you for a speech, all that stuff. So yeah, if, if you, if you're looking for lots of free resources, you can visit strategyskills.com. There's lots of free videos and articles and infographics and guides that you can pull down and use for free to help you think, plan, and act strategically. And then if you're looking for the book specifically, there's more information at strategic-book.com. So strategic-book.com. So those would be the two places to get some additional free resources. Fantastic. Rich, thank you so very much. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Did you have a good weekend, long weekend with your family? Jim had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, we do a fun thing called Turkey of the Year where we nominate, nominate each other for the most embarrassing things people did throughout the year. We vote on it, and then they get a rubber chicken. So that's always a fun time. What's one of the embarrassing things that has won in the past? Uh, one of the things was my dad uh, went with my mom many years ago to buy new shoes. They bought the new shoes. They came home Monday morning. He put them on for work, and he said, Honey, these shoes are way too tight. Why did you let me buy them? I can't wear these. And so she brought them back to the store the next day, and the sales clerk reached into the shoe and pulled out the tissue paper and said, You might want to take out the tissue paper before you try them on next time. Oh, my goodness, my goodness. My mother-in-law lost the car keys, and... Uh, father-in-law was having trouble moving and was, you know, had to be helped and everything. And she decided the keys were underneath father-in-law who was already in the car. So she made him get out and the keys weren't there. And 10 minutes later, she found them. She had tucked them into her bra and the bar <laughs> bra strap. And the keys had been on her body the entire time we were looking for them. So I love it. That would definitely be a winner in our house. Rich, thanks for being with us. Great stuff. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. And we will be right back.
that's a, that's a wonderful question. That's a, yeah. Oh my gosh, I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's that's a that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question, and that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. Yes, we are back. And again, thank you so very much for being with us. Boy, do we have an interesting guest and story to share with you now. Please welcome Benjamin Lightburn. He is the founder of Filament Health, which is a Canadian company. They are the first psychedelic drug discovery company to actually win FDA approval. They are now performing tests at University of California, San Francisco. The trial will be to find out whether certain uh, ingredients of mushrooms can be used for, I guess, legal purposes. We will find out all about this. I'm fascinated. Benjamin, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Just coming off a nice Thanksgiving week. Yes, uh, you're Canadian. Your Thanksgiving is different, isn't it? Aren't you thankful earlier or something? We are thankful earlier. Our Thanksgiving is in October, but um, since a lot of our business is in the United States, things really slow down around uh, uh, Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving week as well. Yes, well... We all have much to be thankful for, including psychedelic drugs. Really? Tell us the story. Sure. So um, psychedelic drugs are compounds that you probably heard of before. You know, we're talking about things like psilocybin from magic mushrooms. Uh, we're talking about like ayahuasca from the Amazon um, mescaline from different kinds of um, psychedelic cacti. And these are compounds that have um, hallucinogenic effects on humans and put us into a kind of what we call a, a mystical experience. And humans have been using these substances for a variety of purposes for millennia, actually. I mean, we have cave paintings of mushroom men. We have um, carvings in rocks in Mesoamerica of, um, of psychedelic mushrooms. And even some people think that some hieroglyphics in uh, Egypt show people using different kinds of psychedelics. And over the millennia, the you know, attitudes and uh, towards these substances have evolved and changed quite a bit. And in the last 50 years, actually, the, the attitudes um, have been very negative, right? In the late 60s and early 70s, um, we had the beginning of the war in drugs. We had basically, you know, all research and um, funding that was looking into the therapeutic potential of these substances, you know, was more or less all put on, put on ice. Um, but luckily, recently, in the last maybe 20 years or so, and especially in the last three or four, there's been a real resurgence of interest to, to look at these different psychedelic compounds to see if they can bring um, some kind of therapeutic potential to society. And, and the great news is, is that a lot of the clinical trial evidence that's starting to come out and that has already come out is showing that compounds, and especially psilocybin, um, can be very effective for a number of different diseases like depression, like PTSD, like substance use disorders, alcoholism, uh, opioid addiction, um, thing, things of that, that nature. So th that's kind of the, the broad overview of where psychedelics are and, and, and the way that they've been treated over the years by, by humanity. Very interesting. You know, I've heard, of course, about the Native Americans using peyote for religious experiences and mind-opening experiences, supposedly. Uh, why did we get into a state where everything was con uh, outlawed? Did we just get into the 50s and have too many bad experiences? What was the reason this became so taboo? Well, it was a combination of, of different things, and it, and it depends how um, 
how uh, kind of a view of President Nixon do you have? Is is a lot of the is a lot of the answer. So the you know the the kind view to President Nixon is that you know these substances are very powerful LSD, psilocybin. They kind of graduated from a controlled laboratory setting out into society, and they're very powerful. And there were some bad experiences and crazy research was being done that was you know, not sanctioned and not well controlled. And so in the interest of public safety, we basically put a kibosh on, on all of that. Now, the less charitable uh, view of Richard Nixon, uh, which I think is pretty much the prevailing view these days, is that these drugs got into the hands of groups that uh, were not politically aligned with his administration. Particularly, you had minorities and you had the left-wing hippie counterculture who was particularly against the war in Vietnam. And by making the substances that these different groups used, um, and not just psychedelics, but marijuana and other kinds of drugs as well, by, by making these substances illegal, there was a convenient tool to go around locking up the political opponents. Because if you actually look at the data of, of psychedelics in particular, they, they are anti-addictive, right? Yes, they cause very, very strong hallucinations, um, but there, there's not really even really a known toxic limit on which it's possible to, say, die of poisoning of, uh, say, psilocybin, right? So they are physiologically, not maybe not emotionally, mentally, but physiologically they are very, very safe. Certainly they are much safer than other substances that are freely permitted in society like alcohol and, and, and at the time tobacco and, and things of that nature. So, so really the prevailing view now is that obviously as we look at the war on drugs and the war on drugs being an abject failure, you know, we look back at that period of history and we think um, the were really craven forces that um, made these substances illegal. And, and it's also important to remember that there were clinics and hospitals and even up in Canada in a place called Weyburn, Saskatchewan, there was a very famous mental health hospital and they were actively treating people with LSD, MDMA and psilocybin, treating them for alcoholism and addiction and, and mental health conditions. All of this stopped because of the war on drugs and the, you know, the new world order uh, that the United States um, uh, put in place regarding these substances. What about Timothy Leary? Did he help or hurt the cause? Uh, he's supposedly the Harvard uh, professor who uh, popularized LSD, maybe is the right word. Believe it or not, Benjamin, this is an amazing story. I was 19, maybe 20. I guess it was 19. My first very serious girlfriend, I went to her grandmother's house, and her grandmother was incredibly eclectic and very rich. and. Uh, the stories I could tell you were uh, shocking in laughter in just a crazy sort of way. But one day she wanted us to come over and see a slideshow. My girlfriend was going to Nepal and she wanted us to see her Nepal pictures, the grandmother's Nepal pictures, half of which were nude. And she had no problem showing me her nude pictures. And by the way, her screen was a $6 million Mondrian painting. She shined the screen, uh, the projector up on a $6 million painting that she owned. And, uh, the, uh, half the pictures were with Timothy Leary. She and Timothy Leary went to Nepal together in the sixties to, to trip. Can you imagine that vacation package? Uh, wow. Well, yeah. Isn't that unbelievable? I, the rest of the story, I just mind boggling. That's the tip of the iceberg. Uh, what about Timothy Leary and the Harvard connection? Yeah. So again, um, the, the original question, you know, did Tim, Timothy Leary, Leary help or hurt the cause? I guess it depends um, on your definition of the cause, right? So is, is the definition of the cause getting psychedelics approved as drugs for medical treatment conditions? Probably he heard it, right? Because without him um, and without the, you know, the like broad uptake of psychedelics by the hippie counterculture, 
probably there would be less chance that they would have been uh, prohibited um, or, or, or made illegal. But if you're, if the cause is kind of like, you know, free thinking society and people taking control of their own destiny and mind and freedom and all those kinds of things, well then Timothy Leary, I'm, I'm sure helps the cause. Um, and even today you have something like eight to 10% of North Americans that regularly consume psychedelics, right? It is, it's, it's important to remember that even though they're illegal, they, these are very, very widely consumed things. Um, and a lot of people really swear by it. And a lot of people have very, very transformative experiences. It's just that for the last 50 years, the, you know, the vast majority of those experiences have been illegal or underground. And what we're trying to get at now are experiences that are sanctioned by medical bodies, right? That are approved by the FDA. So it's, 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 it's quite, it's quite a bit of a different proposition than your girlfriend's grandma, although it does sound like a ton of fun, uh, tripping her way around Annapurna or wherever she went in Nepal. And so what are you, what are you going after specific diseases with the FDA? You can't just be like, we want to help people's mental health, right? You need to be a little more specific, right? That's, that's very true. And that's actually one of the kind of big knocks against the pharmaceutical approval process is that you have to choose a disease, right? You can't say to the FDA, we want to help healthy people be more healthy, or we want to help you know, well, people be more curious or inquisitive, right? Or anything like that. You have to choose disease areas for which you can develop your drug. So what filament's specific mission is, is to get naturally derived psychedelic drugs approved for substance use disorders, um, different um, ad addiction diseases. And what makes us a little bit different from the majority of, of psychedelic drug developers out there is that we actually look to nature for the source of our drugs. Um, so we actually extract, for instance, our psilocybin drug candidate. Um, it actually comes from magic mushrooms. And what that means is that um, future patients can feel like they have a closer connection to the earth and to the history and to the millions of years of evolution that led to human beings and also um, uh, mushrooms. I'm, 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 I'm sure your girlfriend's grandmother would kind of like that kind of feeling, but more importantly, I think, is that our drugs contain not just psilocybin. So if you look at a magic mushroom, it contains much more than just the primary compound, just as if, like, your cup of coffee contains more than caffeine, right? Of course, it does contain caffeine, and that's one of the primary reasons we're drinking the coffee, but also has lots of other compounds in there that give it its flavor, its aroma, and perhaps different... Um, mental effects. The same thing is true with magic mushrooms. And so unlike most other companies, which make psilocybin through chemical synthesis and their product contains only psilocybin, our product contains all of the other secondary compounds from the magic mushroom as well. And we have certain reasons to believe that these other compounds may work together with the main compound to make the whole entourage more effective. And so the diseases that we are trying to treat are in the areas of addiction that I mentioned. So we're targeting opioid use disorder and stimulant use disorder. Opioid use disorder, obviously opioid addiction is one of the biggest problems facing society, right? We're going to have 100,000 Americans die this year, uh, at least of um, opioid addiction, overdoses and toxic drugs and things of that nature. Um, and we really do not have very good tools in the toolbox right now, right? The majority of um, opioid treatment involves uh, substituting the illicit opioid for a pharmaceutical grade opioid. And many patients just don't want to be on a different kind of opioid, right? They'd rather be off of all opioids completely. And, and that's our goal with the development of our natural uh, drug candidate in that area. The other big area that we're looking at is, is stimulant use disorder. And stimulants include um, amphetamine-type stimulants and cocaine-type stimulants. So obviously crystal meth is a very big problem in society, right? We have the fatal overdose rate is growing by 30% per year, every year. People who um, misuse stimulants and can often have violent outbursts and you see random acts of violence on the street, unfortunately, with innocent bystanders. 
Um, and you also see the, uh, a high degree of association with high-risk sexual behavior, crime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So again, for stimulant use disorder, there are actually no approved therapies, right? There are, there, there are no tools in the toolbox. And yet we think that psychedelics can potentially be an extremely promising new treatment for stimulants, cocaine, and amphetamine type. And, and in order to see whether our drugs work in these areas, we actually have a couple of clinical trials that have been approved by, one, the Canadian government in opioid use disorder, a small pilot study to see if we can see if the drugs uh, work. And then we also have another small pilot study up and running in um, uh, that's been approved by the government, sorry, in um, the United States, set to be run at the uh, University of California in San Francisco. How did you get involved in this, Ben? How did you decide to devote your life to this? How'd that come about? Oh, you don't, I, I, uh, I, 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 you sound very conservative. I see your picture and you look like a normal businessman. You know, you, you, you have short hair. You're not blasting Grateful Dead music in the background. Uh, it, it just seems like you're an unlikely candidate for this business in particular. I, 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 yes, it's a carefully crafted disguise that you see. I'm sitting here with six foot long dreadlocks and I pray to the, <laughs> no, no, you're, 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 you're exactly right. I'm a relatively straight and narrow kind of a guy. We're, we're not me and the rest of the team. We're not psychonauts by any stretch of the, the imagination. What drew us to this field was the ability to produce substances that have a very large potential to help a large number of people in society. Um, before starting filaments, um, I've been working in the area of natural products, botanical extraction for my whole career. In fact, I, 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 I fell into this area, the broader area just by accident and have been part of a number of companies that have focused on producing high value plant ingredients from natural sources. And coming off a successful exit in 2018, um, really saw the opportunity in psychedelics to apply many skills that we had learned in terms of, you know, company building, um, extraction, technology, you know, working with the government, having GMP manufacturing, all of these skills are directly applicable to psychedelics. And of course you had the ability to make life-changing medication. So we decided, myself and several of my former colleagues from this previously exited company, we decided that we we had to jump in. I mean, it it became very clear to us that we really had no choice, that this was a very, very obvious um, and necessary necessary thing to do. One, One interesting fact about Canada is that the Canadian government is actually allowing um, on a limited basis, um, prescriptions of psilocybin to patients in the real world. And so if you're a Canadian uh, patient and you have serious depression and you've tried all the available treatments and they don't work, um, or you have what's known as end-of-life distress, which is you know fear and anxiety uh, associated with um, some kind of a terminal uh, diagnosis, typically of, of cancer, you can apply to the Canadian government for permission to, to have psilocybin be prescribed to you. And we've had now around 150 um, cases of that permission be, be given to us. So what's really fascinating is that out in Canada, on a limited basis, we are seeing successful prescriptions for psilocybin for serious conditions, which you know obviously gives our team... Um, a lot of, um, uh, we're very thankful and grateful to be able to, to, it's a very gratifying experience, obviously, to be able to help uh, our fellow citizens by providing them uh, drugs on a limited basis. You've done an unusual thing with your business structure. I think we used to call this a reverse IPO or something. I don't, I don't know. Explain how you're doing some of your fundraising and the merger and how that's going to end up getting you on NASDAQ. Sure. Yeah. So we are doing uh, something a little bit unusual. Um, The company was started in uh, 2020 and um, in 2021, we went public on a Canadian exchange called the NEO. Um, And, um, you know, your listeners probably are very well aware that 
since June of 2021, it's been a pretty tough market for biotech, for startups, for anything high risk, anything that has earnings well out into the future with higher interest rates and, you know, a, a, a retrenchment of the animal spirits that were, you know, very prevalent during COVID in, in our market. Um, and so we've been looking for new ways to access capital, obviously, like any um, startup company is. And one of the things that um, came to our attention was the possibility of uplisting to the NASDAQ uh, by way of a merger with a NASDAQ-listed SPAC. Now, your re- listeners have, have probably heard about SPACs, um, back, again, back in the in the heydays of the market in 2020, 2021, they were all the rage, but now the market has shifted substantially, and so you can kind of think of these SPACs um, a little bit like uh, shell companies that are traded um, on the NASDAQ. Most of them, their investors have pulled out um, the money and they're basically just empty shells and the dynamics of the market have changed quite significantly. And so we found this fact that we are very comfortable with and, and we, we liked their, the management team and their mission and their objectives. And we signed a combination agreement with them in uh, July, um, which anticipates the closing of the combination in December, which will result in us um, listing on NASDAQ. And in connection with that um, uplisting, there has been a, a certain amount of investor interest and appetite to invest in the new um, merged company. And so it's a kind of a unique thing because we're already publicly traded in Canada and we're merging with a SPAC to become traded on the NASDAQ, um, but that has resulted in, in certain efficiencies. But it is, it, is, it is a little bit unusual. But the, at the end of the day, the, the plan is to be well-capitalized trading on NASDAQ where we expect to see a much larger um, biotech, sophisticated biotech investor audience than what we're um, used to seeing in Canada trading on a lesser-known exchange. Very interesting. Uh, there used to be a little bit of, oh, what's the right word? Uh, disrespect for this move that it wasn't a hundred percent above board. Uh, is that a fair statement? With a, with a, a SPAC merger? Yeah. I mean, the, the perception was not a hundred percent positive, say five or 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure about five or 10 years ago, but definitely in the boom market of 2020, 2021, there were a lot of SPAC mergers. A lot of companies went public via a SPAC. And unfortunately, a lot of the promises of the companies that were going public weren't really met. And many of these SPAC post, post combinations, these SPAC mergers have traded down. What's a little bit different about us in our case is that we are already a public company. And so all of our public statements are already out in the public domain. You know, everything we already have financial statements, you know, there are no skeletons in our closet. Um, and we're also raising a, a much smaller amount of money to become listed on NASDAQ than what's been typical in, in years past. And so what that means, um, we think is that there will be, um, more friendly capital in our deal than the typical hedge fund crowd, which likes to play in these deals and invariably lead to the stock being traded down. So, so we're very excited about this prospect. Again, it's a very different for our situation simply on, on account of the fact that we are already publicly listed in Canada. You know, we're, we're not a private company scrambling to get public. We're already public. And, and therefore, like I said, don't really have any, don't really have any secrets that we're trying to hide. All right. I guess that, you know, I think that that probably is a, a good way to, to phrase it. No secrets to hide. Uh, a lot of these companies I think did have some, and so maybe that's why, uh, I have this negative perception, but I also have a perception that it's changed. That a lot of people are, are the, the, it's now a hundred percent normal and respected. Um, so it seems like a smart move to me. What are you going to do with the money you raise? Is this the, a boat, new boat? Old boats for all the staff and expensive shares. 
you know, um, you know, we have our eye on like these fifty thousand dollars. No, I'm just kidding. No, they, we're gonna we're gonna spend the money on advancing our clinical trials in substance use disorders, in opioid and um, methamphetamine use disorders through uh, the clinical trial process. Um, we the uh, one of the other unique things about us is that we have our manufacturing uh, all in house. We operate our own facility here in Vancouver, Canada. Um, so we have salaries and staff and general working capital, but the, you know, the main, the main, um, uh, impetus of the business is develop these drugs for substance use disorders. And that's the primary thing we'll be spending the money on, on clinical trials. And, uh, what would, or how long until you have total FDA approval? Would that be five years from now? You hear nightmare stories of the FDA taking decades. Uh, what is the outlook there? Yeah, I would say five years would be a fair estimate. Um, it does take a while to run all your studies, to run all your trials, um, to the degree that the FDA requires. Um, but there is the opportunity um, in some of these areas because the treatment is so promising and the diseases are so pernicious. Um, there is the opportunity to get certain fast track things. And, you know, there's something called breakthrough therapy status, which the FDA will kind of give you like a little gold star to help shepherd you through the development process. But yeah, it is, it is long and, and the FDA is out there trying to make sure that people are marketing treatments that are obviously safe and effective, right? That they aren't harmful to people and that the health claims match what they, what they say they are. Right. What's the comparison to ketamine? Is that a totally separate category? It's already received approval, hasn't it? That's right. So, so ketamine is actually um, has been approved as a as an anesthetic drug for many decades, and it's in wide use, uh, especially in children um, uh, for for surgery and things like that. And in recent years, um, it's received a lot of interest as a potential treatment for depression. And I would say it's not totally, I would say it's different, but it's not totally different. It's, it's known as a disassociative, not necessarily as a psychedelic. And a specific form of ketamine called S-ketamine um, ingested nasally um, has been approved for um, depression. Um, but it requires multiple visits to the doctor's office. You have to go every other day for several weeks. You have to stay there under monitoring. Um, and we think that the efficacy of, um, of psilocybin and of the true quote unquote, true psychedelics may turn out to be more effective than, um, than ketamine. You probably, your, your listeners have probably also heard, um, of ketamine clinics, um, where people can go receive um, injections of ketamine. That's actually, for depression, that's actually what's known as off-label treatment. Um, I am, uh, injected ketamine is actually not um, approved for depression, although it is widely being administered. It's not illegal, it's just approved off-label, and, and that's why usually insurance providers don't cover it. Interesting. Well, I have a lot to learn in this space, Ben, and thank you for the primer and congratulations on the success you've had with the business so far. And I hope you continue to help people. Sounds promising. And thank you for fighting this fight. Well, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's new challenges every day, but the bigger picture is obviously, you know, very rewarding and it's, it's easy to find people to be motivated for this kind of work. <laughs> How do we find out more and follow online? Head to our website, filament.health, or just Google us, Filament Health. Um, the best place to stay connected is obviously through our social media channels, but in particular, um, signing up for our newsletter, which we send out usually every week, includes a lot of interesting information. Um, and yeah, just, just get in touch. We're, we're easy to find. Fantastic. Benjamin, thank you so much for being with us. Interesting, and I uh, can't wait to see how this plays out. Thanks for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. And we're out of time, but you know what? We're back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care and go make a million dollars. Have a good day. Bye now. <laughs>